Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I cannot wait for the listeners to hear what we have coming up. It's an incredibly special episode. But before we get to that, Tim, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. We just came off of the weekend at Obsessed Fest, and this was one of the panels that we did at Obsessed Fest 2023. There's a lot going on. We did several panels, but this one is very special, and I want to say that we don't even speak in this entire presentation. On this episode is Jody Voice Yellowfish, Christy Swimmer McLemore, Phyllis Nuno, and Araya Gonzalez. And these are all members of the MMIW, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Texas Rematriate Organization. And we just wanted to give Christopher Walker, the voice of IDs disappeared, a shout out because he's the one that brought to the table this idea that we should be focusing on something that was very centric to the city of Dallas. And this is where the idea came from. And the organizers of the Obsessed Fest were very open to having this panel, which we heard later on was sort of the hidden gem of the weekend. Okay, so we're going to play the audio now from Obsessed Fest. There are some links in the show notes to the MMIW Texas Rematriates social pages. So check that out. There are also links to donate. And we're just going to take a quick break for commercial, and we'll be right back with our MMIW Texas panel from Obsessed Fest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I am so, so pleased to introduce uh, the... MMIW Texas Rematriate Organization. And for those who don't know what that acronym stands for, it stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, so over here on the far stage left <laughs> is Jody Voice Yellowfish. She's the co-founder and chair. Then we have Christy Swimmer McElmore, um, and you are the vice chair. Then we have the secretary, Phyllis Nuno, and their youngest member, and Phyllis's daughter, Araya Gonzalez. So please give them a hand and a warm welcome. Our organization, we always, with all of our work, we open and close with a prayer, because within this work, we often refer to um, our relatives, our community, that aren't with our family, and if that's 
because uh, they've, they've passed on or they're still lost, uh, we try to be respectful of that. Uh, because when we say their names, we bring them into these spaces with us, so it needs to be um, respectful. And I'm going to um, open that up for Phyllis. She's going to open us with a prayer real quick. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for giving us this opportunity to be here in this space. And we, we just ask that you just cleanse the energy, the air, the atmosphere. We just ask that you watch over each individual heart, mind, and spirit that is here today. We ask that you keep, it, keep us safe from any harm and just continue to be with us. And we just ask these things. So to start with, you know, our, um, like I said, our organization is MMIW Texas Rematriate, and we're made up of, um, I think we have 14, 15 active members, 14 active members, and we're all different tribes, so I want to make sure that everyone gets to say their names and their tribes. I, I think that really helps everyone outside of our work understand what we deal with and how... Um, being open to different cultural aspects, things that are different than you, how that um, affects our work. So again, my name is Jody, and I'm Muscogee Creek, Oglala, Lakota, and Cherokee. And Christy? My name is Christy Swimmer Mclemore um, of the Cherokee Tribe. My name is Phyllis Nuno. I am a member of the Absentee Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma, but I'm also affiliated with the Choctaw, Mississippi Choctaw, Sacafox, Shawnee, and Oneida Tribes. My name is Araya Gonzalez, and I'm with the Cherokee <laughs> so just a little bit about um, MMIW Texas Rematriate and what we do. Basically, our mission is um, to search and bring home missing relatives and loved ones. Um, and we offer support and um, healing processes to our, to, our, um, to our missing and murdered and their families. Um, but we also advocate for social change as well. Also... Um, she mentioned MMIW stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, but you'll also see other acronyms such as MMIW um, 2S, which which stands for Two Spirit, um, or MMIP, which stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, and there's also MMIWR, which stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives. Yeah, and we have this presentation that we use all the time, and uh, we've been working with that with the organizers and whatnot. So uh, we might be going through this kind of kind of quickly, um, as we we want it to be more conversational and not just a presentation where we're giving you facts and whatnot. Within our work, we all have our our own reasons why we do the work, and we've our work started as just being in community with each other. And there was a specific case that uh, really pulled me in, and we started doing work as a community to have a vigil. And after that, our community was just like, what's next? You know, like, how do we keep combating the crisis? So, and uh, I, I, we usually have this, this uh, slide in our presentation because we like to not only share the artwork, but kind of why this crisis began with this name. You're, you're always going to see MMIW before you see MMIR, MMIP. Um, it really started with the understanding the disproportional, disproportionate rates um, that happen to Native women, Indigenous women. And it became the crisis that it is because we're taught that um, as women, 
women are sacred because we are life givers. And that's been kind of at the core of all of the work that we do, um, even though our work has expanded to, to find um, all people, um, men, boys, two-spirit relatives. And one of the reasons why we, um, we open with a prayer and things like that, uh, I'm always asked about um, what pulled me into the work. In that case that I mentioned where we wanted to have a vigil was for Savannah Graywin. And to start with Savannah, I feel like to understand the work when we say um, relatives, uh, that's how all of us work. When we have a case, um, we take on this case as if we're finding our own relative. We're searching for somebody um, that's our family or even um, helping them fight for justice uh, because that's often the case a lot of times. But um, with Savannah... This was the case that I first really felt like I needed to activate myself and do something within the community. This was the case that shook me and made me feel like I lost a family member. And I think to understand that, um, I've had the privilege to attend Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. You know, it's, it's a tribal college. You have to be a tribal citizen, tribal member to attend that college. And uh, you are lucky enough to see a lot of young people um, start their life um, and not just them find themselves and become active, but you see a lot of families start start there. And Savannah was just that. Savannah was a college student. Uh, her and her partner had it at home. They were, she was pregnant. They were going to have a baby, just literally starting their life together. And Savannah's kindness was exploited. A neighbor asked for her help, and Savannah obliged and went to this person's home to help her model uh, clothes for a fitting and get measured and things like that because the person was supposedly a seamstress. Went to this this uh, upstairs neighbor in her apartment complex and never left. Uh, Savannah was murdered in that apartment. Her baby was cut from her womb. Uh, Savannah was dumped in a nearby river. And when her family went to law enforcement and said, you know, their relative was missing. That police department there was quick to say, oh, she's, she'll come back. She's probably partying. And they're like, no, that's not her. She's pregnant right now. She's not in that lifestyle. This isn't like her. Um, police really wouldn't do anything. And one thing that we've learned is we do a lot of the work that they should be doing. And this happened with this case. This community activated themselves for the family and this community found her on their own. And this was what really activated myself and my sister to do something. And like I said, once that happened, you know, we had a, we had a vigil, we wanted to honor her, but we also asked if in our community, if there were people that wanted to honor somebody else, like, are there people in our community that have been lost to this violence and things like that? And we got a lot of names that I had never heard I didn't know about. I grew up in Dallas. And, you know, we got these these uh, these names and these stories, and we honored them by saying their names. We had this uh, vigil, this butterfly release, all of these things. And one of our members, he was told um, by an elder, like, we've always had this, this problem. It's always been a crisis. We just didn't have a name for it. Now we know how to talk about it. And that really, that stuck with me because I was thinking we have these elders that, I've just accepted and lived with that pain 
for generations now. But I do want to mention that Dallas, Dallas is a relocation site, and not many people know what that means. So the U.S. government had a, a relocation act, the Relocation Act of 1956, and that was basically a form of assimilation that got um, tribal citizens off their ancestral homelands and tribal lands and brought them to big cities, and Dallas was one of them. Um, uh, myself, personally, uh, both of my parents came on relocation. Uh, our city, you know, I, I do a lot in our city, and I'm in a lot of spaces where I get to talk to city officials and things like that. I ask this in almost every space I go to if, you know, how has Dallas acknowledged this? You know, is there somebody where somewhere I can find, like, archives that, that there was a Bureau of Indian Affairs office here? They have no idea where to send me. Um, I work closely with different council persons as I'm, a, I'm on a board. I'm on an advisory board with the city. They have no idea where to send me, no idea where to find anything to acknowledge that, why there are hundreds of tribes represented here. But on the screen, I have some, some of the contributing factors to this crisis that we end up helping a lot of people with. And it's, it's important to understand that, you know, we may not be on tribal land, but there are a lot of citizens here in the area that um, end up facing violence, may that be um, domestic violence or assault of some kind, and that's a lot of times how we end up helping families or different cases. Um, so that's really something to, kind of a lot to digest, but it really needs to be understood in the work that we do. But after we had this vigil and started to be active, once we decided that it was only a handful, maybe five of us, that said we want to be a group that helps our community. Um, we did. And we kind of quietly announced that we wanted to do this work and that we were officially a, a program under this other organization. It was less than a week later that I got contacted and needed help. Um, a family needed help. And the person that contacted me was a grandmother that was needing to help to find her granddaughter, and that was Christy. Um, Christy was the person that first uh, contacted me for, for that help, and uh, I, I mentioned when we were planning this, this talk today that Christy and I often don't get to talk together in this type of setting. Um, being in leadership roles in this, this work, uh, if I can't do it, I call Christy. And if she can't do the work, then I go, we're never, <laughs> we're never in the same space. So we're, we're kind of lucky to get to share that together today. Um, but yeah, I want, I want to offer, offer Christy a little bit of time to, I don't know how much you want to share, but some time to, <laughs> some time to share how our work kind of started. Um, and, and I'm really appreciative when Christy shares because Christy's uh, family's story touches on everything that we combat with this crisis. Um, the history, the intergenerational um, trauma and effects of dealing with violence. And um, also when I came into to, to her family's life, um, I saw everything just like what, what, what we mentioned with Savannah, like no help from where you expect to get the help from. Um, we learned a lot <laughs> helping, helping Christie's family um, I can still refer to things that I learned and how we did, how we navigated that situation that helped 
current cases when we have those. So I want to pass that along to Christine. So let me just start by being a victim of sexual trafficking and child abuse at my station myself back in the 80s. You know, this issue has was grown and has grown as an epidemic so much throughout the years. We didn't speak of it back then. Uh, we just picked up and moved on, and it was held inside. We couldn't mention what happened to us. We couldn't talk about it, nor could we get justice. Um, my mother was my sexual trafficker. She was a very hard time. And you know, being an adult and being a mother and being a grandmother now of 22 grandchildren, you know, you come to realize that at the time back then, they didn't know any better. And you learn to forgive. And you learn to hold on. But that's the only mother you'll ever have. And somewhere, our great spirit brings back to us things that happen in our past to show us our path of where we belong and what we need to do. And directs us in our setting of our life. And that's what happened to me. For many years, I didn't speak of anything. I didn't speak of the abuse. I didn't talk about it. I was an adamant alcoholic. And I was very protective over my children. Uh, very frantic and panicky over not knowing where they're at. Always had to know where they are, be in touch with them. They never rode the bus. They never walked home from school. Um, it, it really traumatized me. But it took my granddaughter coming up missing and being abducted and sexually trafficked herself for me to realize I can continue on with my life being a victim for the rest of my life and living it. Or I can find that faith in me to make a change, to make a difference. And when she came up missing here in the DFW area, there was no help. And because of what was going on at home, she was a habitual runaway. And the police continued to say, you know, she'll be back. She's always come back. But this time was different. And I personally hadn't been in touch with my granddaughter in about 10 years when this happened in 2019. So when her mother contacted me, I kind of had that gut feeling, you know, okay, this is different. She hadn't returned home within 24 hours like she normally has. Um, the police wouldn't escalate anything. They wouldn't even search for her. Um, it was more just a written report, gave us a case number, and that was it. Any calls or anything that we got, they didn't give us any resources of what we could do, where we could go, or what we needed to do. It was just a waiting game. So when I came in the picture and everything is when I contacted Jody, and when I reached out, didn't contact her directly, I reached out to the Indian community. I really don't trust police officers or law enforcement. I really have no faith in them. And... Um, my father always taught me, you know, Indian community is family. Her mother's taken me in back when I couldn't find my father at times. Um, so 
With that being said, I just reached out to the Indian community, and Jody's the one that reached back out to me. With that being said, it took us finding and doing the legwork, finding it, making flyers. Uh, people donated the money to have those flyers made. She was missing for 10 days. And, you know, I'm a survivor, and I was only praying that my granddaughter was going to be alive. But it took those flyers and us doing the legwork and continuing being up for 10 days and nights, searching and just every areas that we can. Um, a Walmart employee happened to find her flyer, see her flyer. Uh, we just by chance that day got it on, on the news on Channel 4. A little smidget of a, a poster flying, visual. That was it. That was the only news channel that would help me. Um, at that time, then, a Walmart employee contacted us and says, I've seen her. She's here. She was here with a man. She wasn't allowed to speak. She wasn't allowed to do anything. She sat right here with me, told me that they were taking her to California. They were getting ready to leave. Um, we contacted the police because Walmart couldn't give us or show us the video of her getting in the car or any of that information. So finally, when the police officer ver verified our story of what our findings were, then at that time did they take action. And the next day, that evening, she was brought home and she was alive. It wasn't just her. There were other children that they had collected from the east to the from the north as well. The youngest, six years old. These people got a slap on the hand for this. There was no, do I feel fair justice? No. They got a minimum, maybe five years, they'll be out in three. And... That's all there is. Had this happened on a reservation, it would have been a federal case. And hopefully then, yeah, we would have got justice. With us being out here and away from our, our homes, it's different. And we're shied away a lot of the time because our Native community is known as alcoholics, drug users, lowlifes. I mean, honestly, we are. Um, they rule us as uneducated. They rule us as unsovereign. I mean, and it's not fair. My father was a, in the Army. He served. He was made to go in the military. He was an active um, relocation activist here. He started many of the programs for our Indian community here, such as the Urban Tribal and Center, the American Indian Chamber of Commerce, um, along with Tribal American Network, our Beyond Bows and Arrows radio station here in the community, just so our community here, the people that were of the relocation, could keep ties to their homelands and their community. You know, I don't know what's worse. My granddaughter is still lost, and there's a lot of healing still to this day that needs to be done. As I said, you know, I found out and realized that I could continue my life being a victim or I could continue it being a survivor and trying to make a difference in this world, especially to those girls and those women that have been taken and that have been victims and are victims and do keep quiet and keep that shelter and keep that pain inside 
with alcoholism and drug use. I can only reach out to them and offer a smidget of help. I can't heal them. I can't cure them. I can't take away the pain and what's happened to them. But I feel it. And I know it hurts. But I can honestly say that with MMIW, I feel like it really gives me that generosity to be who I am and to speak and to not be silent anymore. And that's what I choose to do, is not to be silent anymore of what's happened to me and my family. It not only happened to my granddaughter, just a couple of years, a year and a half ago, my cousin herself was missing here in the Dallas area again. And she was being sexually trafficked and drugged as well. We had to take her actually back to Oklahoma to get away because our family was at then at the site of being harassed, threatened. And to this day, we still have not gotten her trafficker under in jail or behind bars. It's not even being investigated anymore. As much as I pushed for it, my cousin still has... Uh, to go through the pain, the heal. She has PTSD, just as I do, from the trauma and what's happened to her. I don't think we'll ever get justice for what happened to her. And I don't think she'll ever be able to come back to the DFW area. And this is where she grew up. So a lot of this work, it, it is draining. But it does give me the satisfaction of knowing if I've touched one life or touched one family and helped them and assisted them, even in being a voice, if their victim didn't come home, that in itself gives me peace and it gives me the heart to move on and to continue this work. I have been forever indebted to Jody and, the, and MMIW and I will continue to do so and speak about what's happened to this family. It's not fair, but it happens and it is our reality and has been our reality for genocides. Thank you. We, like like I mentioned, we learned so much through that first case. You know, when we when we started helping, looking for her her granddaughter, I ended up, you know, I, I come from different kind of organizing activist spaces in the area, and I, I knew how to contact the media. I knew that you can't get law enforcement to do something, call the DA's office, because then they'll get off their ass because they're getting called. Um, that's what we did. We had them call the DA. They started moving. You can't get uh, on the media. You can't get help from different clearinghouses like foundations that help look for people if you don't have um, a missing person's case number, if you don't have a file, report it. And I've literally seen people not want to call the cops and not want to work with the cops when somebody is missing. Um, so that was, you know... We learned so much in how to how to handle things from then. And that's part of what we do. We try to help families navigate these situations as safe as possible. We we learn something new, how to handle it every every time we help a family. So we, we don't always have an active case, which is good. You know, um, we don't always want to have <laughs> active cases. So we do a lot of um, different outreach work and different advocacy work and different education and we're, we're able to tell people um, it's not the safest thing for you to put your phone number on, on a flyer. You know, um, you get fake tips, you get ransom calls and, you know, we, we've had people get upset, like, I'm going to put this and we get it. 
you know, you are in crisis mode and you are going to do everything to find your, your family, your relative. But what we do is just try to be, be that buffer. We want to, we want to help them talk to media. We want to help them talk to law enforcement because there's a lot of trauma when it comes to law enforcement. Uh, I have my own biases. I have my own reasons why I, I distrust, distrust the cops. And, you know, we, I have to put that aside. You know, I have to put, um, cause this work and this crisis is bigger than any individual. Um, and I don't know. And I've even been told, you know, in, in, in our city here, you know, other organizers and activists have said like, I don't know anybody that has to work within this broken system. Like you do like the work that we do, but because we can harness and, you know, manage our, our distrust or our anger, um, with like law enforcement and stuff, we, are able now to have a contact that we can directly talk to, or we're able to call them out and tell them to their face, like, you know, you say to do this and do that, but that doesn't work. So what do we do? And doing this work too, uh, especially with this new relationship we're building with uh, Dallas Police Department. One of the first meetings I went to and I got called to, um, I was not expecting to walk in a room and see 20 uniformed officers. Um, and different, different people. I literally just stopped and stood there and I was, I had to explain to them. It's like, I don't trust you. I don't feel safe. And then I started hearing all this stuff like from them. They're like, yeah, I I get it. I understand. And if you're that open as open and honest, they're a little more open to hearing the inconsistencies and the flaws within their own system. I've seen in cases where they're told to call 911 and file a report that doesn't work. They're told to call the missing persons unit. They do. They get the runaround. And I can tell them that now. Like, don't tell somebody to do that if you know it's not going to work. Um, and I know they get annoyed <laughs> when I say these things, but that's what we're here to do. And when we com- combat these crises, we have to look at everything. <laughs> I don't know how many times, you know, Christy and I have talked to families about... Um, <laughs> kinship and foster care and getting custody. And, you know, we, these are things that we have to combat. We're not social workers. We're not counselors. And we get called for it. We've gotten called for a family's needing help with somebody with suicidal ideation. Somebody's dealing with domestic violence. Somebody's dealing with uh, homelessness. These are all factors that get ignored, you know, when we're dealing with somebody uh, that's missing. And that's where that, that care like, like family, like community, like your relatives. Um, I'm privileged enough to, to educate on this topic in university settings often. And it is a foreign concept to non-native people about relatives and helping your community as if they're family. I can see young, young white men in these audiences and universities roll their eyes and just sigh and just like, oh my gosh, like, and there's no care. There's no true care to that this person is a human and that that's somebody's loved one and they want stats, they want numbers, they want quantitative data. We don't have that. We have been dealing with this violence since colonization began and it never stopped. It just looks different, you know, and we're still dealing with that. And when I tell people that and I tell people like, you're not just going to get on Google and find the right numbers, they get annoyed. Uh, you're not going to get on Google and use an image or use somebody's picture or use somebody's name. Um, and they ask why. And I'm like, they're human. That's somebody you don't, you don't get to exploit them in that manner. Um, and so that's something really 
like I said, it's a foreign concept to non-Native people, and I see it on, on the regular. But that's something, too, that we talked about with each other that we wanted to make sure we brought to this space was, uh, you know, I mentioned the other day in our planning meeting, like, I really struggled with if I was going to do the the podcast I, I initially did. Um, I was contacted, and I asked probably a good 20 people that I was learning from about this work if I should do it. Um, and I, I wanted to make sure we brought that up in this space um, and that our work is an entertainment. You know, it's, it's not like that. And we dealt with dehumanization on so many levels for generations. Um, like I said, like since colonization began here. But all of the ladies that I was learning from about this crisis work, they, they mentioned how it was an opportunity to educate. And so I want to make sure that thought process around true crime and different podcasts um, is, is taken in, you know, is that, you know, you're, you're very interested in understanding the ins and outs of these things that happen to these families and these individuals and these cases, but it's hard work for the people that are involved. You know, we're, we're a grassroots organization and this work gets heavy. Early on when I first started this work, when we weren't actually just taking on lots of cases, I was helping in a lot of different, different ways in different cases um, in other states, uh, Oklahoma and New Mexico specifically, because a lot of that um, people are trafficked. And so they cross state lines and they come into Texas. And um, I didn't realize the depth of it until I was called upon for a case in Oklahoma. And they were like, Jody, we're getting the run around because they're saying, you know, you're not even in Texas. Why are you calling us? Why are you calling the coroner's office? And I was like, fine, I'll do it. You know, I'm here. I can say. And it was the moment I got put on hold and they were looking through their Jane Doe's in South Texas when I realized, like, I might get told uh, and have to call this mom that her daughter was found. Um, and I realized it just hit me. Like, it was so heavy in that moment. Like, I, I felt like I was waiting for somebody that I knew. And I was just like, oh, my God, am I going to be able to finish this, this conversation, this phone call? And she wasn't there. We did find her. She was, she was alive. We were able to get her back to her family that was looking for her. But in that moment, I realized, like, okay, I got to figure out how to, how to work this, how to navigate this in a healthy way so I don't get burned out or overwhelmed. And it's a very delicate balancing act for all of us. And I just, we, we all just wanted to make sure that, that um, people are reminded that they're human, that their relatives, that their family members are navigating the rest of their lives, sometimes searching um, or fighting for justice because that doesn't often happen. We don't get that justice we deserve and need um, to heal. And some of our work, we, we uplift um, cases that are seeking justice. Uh, Christy mentioned, you know, her, her cousin. You know, I, I check in with our, our contact at DPD and I don't really get any answers and I don't even get told um, who I should ask. You know, they have a lot of turnover in every department and it's vice that does advice that would uh, be the person that can update you. They have so much turnover. I can't even keep the name straight. Um, and that's something you deal with in a large city. And um, we've helped two cases that were my family members. I had a cousin that we had to help and she's doing amazing. I actually refer to her a lot. And she's mentioned to me how, you know, the MMIW network, that's what she says all the time, the MMIW ladies, MMIW network made me feel valued. And so she's, she's in recovery now and doing great. 
sometimes I just I just mention her and I remind the other ladies in Oklahoma that did the work that like this is why you do the work because that needs to happen. You need to get reminded often. We helped another case with our family and it was two two babies that were um, it was a parental abduction. So we we do a lot of different things and it's not just in our city um, and that's another way that we're connected through community. You know um, we're here because of relocation and things like that, but we're still connected to our tribal communities wherever that is. You know um, it could be. Um, up north, it could be out west, it could be out east, it could just be in Oklahoma, and it could be further down south. Um, we've helped cases in uh, in Livingston, the Alabama Cachada Reservation. Christy and I have been in Austin looking for somebody from from uh, Oklahoma. She was dealing with schizophrenia. She was trafficked by her mother, and we were running around in homeless camps talking. And we got we we got so close. I could not believe how close we were while we were there. Um, but she was found like two days later and she was taken back. Um, but we were told how, if we didn't get those flyers everywhere in those communities, they wouldn't have been telling the cops themselves that she's not just homeless, she's missing and people are looking for her. And not just these cases, like I said, we uplift when families need justice and closure and healing. Um, and I want to, Make sure I give Phyllis time to mention how we've connected with her family as well. So uh, the flyer that you see in front of us here is, uh, well, let me just start by saying um, I ended up coming together with MMIW and, and with Jody and in January of 2020. Um, and I was like, okay, this is something that I could they could use my help because, you know, I didn't know that at the time there was, there was only a handful of these, this, these people that were, that were doing all of this work. And if I could do something to offer them some, you know, some rest or something, you know, I was, I was willing to step up and take that, um, take that opportunity. Um, so in November of 2020, it became real. I want to bring up my auntie. You don't have to come up here. Ellison was seven years old. Sienna was 10. And their mother, Kamora, was 43. And like she said, we are still... We help families who are still looking for justice. This is why it's so important to me that we do this work for these families, for these people who don't have a voice. They can't speak for themselves anymore. She can't speak about it without the floodgates opening. to be a support system for these people and these families. Because, it, like she said, it gets so heavy. It's what we need. This organization was what we needed as a family. Christy's family needed that support. Every family that we've ever helped needed that. They didn't know they needed that, but they needed that because, like we said, we don't trust 
the police department. We have to form these organizations and do this on our own. We have to, you know, um, we have to be our own voice and our own advocates for ourselves and our, our community, our people. But we still don't have justice on this, this case. Um, yes, we are fortunate that they have the, the suspect in custody, but we don't. We can, my aunt can't even begin to have closure until we get a conviction. And myself, having grandchildren myself, this is how heavy it gets. And these are the real feelings that people have. So um, I always want to bring her and welcome her whenever we come and do anything. Because uh, not only, not because I'm her aunt, I mean, I'm, I, she's, my, she's my aunt and I'm her niece and she's my favorite auntie, but... Um, she needs that support because this case is all the way in Alaska and she's tirelessly, you know, emailing and calling all the time and not being heard. They pay her no mind. Like she's nothing. Like these babies were nothing. So it just made it so close to home. Although I was already, you know, committed and dedicated to this work. It just really made it an extra step for me to help another family somehow, anyway, any way that we can offer. So I apologize, but I, I never want them to be forgotten. And when we speak these names, may we always offer love and remembrance and compassion to every name that we, we speak in these spaces. That's what we want. We don't ever want them to be forgotten. So thank you for letting me share that. And this is, this is why at the core of our work and how we remind ourselves is that this work is sacred. You know, the data is sacred. They're not just photos. They're not just a missing persons flyer. Um, it's more than that. You know, these families, sometimes they search forever. I've seen families lose their homes because they put so much money into searching for somebody. You know, and they don't have the resources. And uh, even if it happens on tribal land, sometimes tribes just don't have the infrastructure to have the resources to help to help their, their citizens, their tribal members. There's just so much that goes into this. And uh, some of our work... Um, you know, when I, when I explain the work, like, oh, we do these flyers and stuff, and people kind of like, that's it. But you don't understand how that's just the first step for a family. You know, like, we have our, our members that create our flyers. They can create something like this that we have down there. Um, and that can be just enough, just that, that new little support that can help somebody like Beverly speak. Speak about what's happening. Speak about what has happened. You know, when I started learning about this this case, uh, Phyllis told me the name of Beverly's daughter-in-law. And I was like, wait, I 
that sounds really familiar. Um, and I and I mention this because that's that relative um, component in our work. I went to Haskell with Kamora, and I remember her because she was just a really cool person. She drove a motorcycle from Alaska to Kansas to go to school. Uh, she made her own clothes, and she was she was amazing at this. That she did some Project Runway stuff. Like she was just a really cool person, and I just thought, like, how random is that? Like how random that in our in our small community here, that's how connected we are, um, and I think that gets overlooked when missing persons cases are discussed. That human component, that relative component component is so special. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. We're going to start kind of closing up before we did. I wanted to make sure Araya has a chance if she wants to share anything um, at all. You know, you don't have to, you know, <laughs> to, but I am, I'm very proud that we have, um, we have a, have a teenager that's a member. We hadn't even thought about that when we started forming our, ourselves and, uh, rules of what we're doing and we had little applications because our work is confidential we have to have people understand that you can't share details it can ruin a case like we deal with so much um, and I know she's she's been exposed to a lot of adult conversations and a lot of adult feelings and a lot of heavy things and so I'm just really proud that Araya um, is stepping up to share uh, and educate on her own so if if you want to Araya you can you can share something okay <laughs> well, hello, I'm Maria, and this stuff affects my generation too. Um, I'm sorry, I'm emotional. Sorry. This could happen to anyone. It could happen to me. That's why I wanted to get involved. It's because I want to pave the way for people younger than me or my age. To start getting involved in these topics. Start getting introduced to these heavy, heavy issues that are real. And it's a, it's a hard subject, but I'm very proud of myself for getting involved. You know, because not a lot of people would be okay being open to hear these conversations. And I'm very proud to represent MMIW as the youngest member. Hopefully not the last, but definitely the first. 
And I want to thank you, Jody, for welcoming me and my mom to the organization. So, like, yeah, we're really proud of Maria <laughs> for everything she does. I do. Um, this was. This is always something I. I make sure that we share, especially in uh, when our audience isn't all native and we have non-native uh, folks. Um, we always get asked how to be, how to be involved, and we've really we've really changed this since we've started. We've really like, um, we have to be very very forward and very honest and and open with folks that want to support the work. And we we tell people to be prepared to have uncomfortable conversations. We are an organization where our trauma comes into the work with us, and we remind people of that. And you don't have to be Native to support the work. But there are things you need to tell yourself. You, know, you need to check your privilege. You need to check, um, check yourself and not center yourself and be prepared to listen and be open. And um, sometimes, you know, we don't, you don't need to reinvent the wheel, you know. And I get asked all over the country, like, if they can donate to our work. And every time I've asked them if they've looked locally for an organization. And I'd say nine times out of ten, they find one closer to them. And I tell them, you know, I, I'm push, you know, I'm saying I don't want this money because somebody else needs the same money. Um, and it can be something as simple as pay, paying for printing fees, uh, giving a family gas money, helping them with groceries because they've spent all of their money on gas or flyers. And it happens. It happens all the time. Yeah, there's just, there's so many ways to, to support your connections support. If you know somebody at, at a local news station, you know, help push that flyer uh, beyond the, the news desk, the, the, the check-in desk where they get the everyday tips, you know, help somebody, remind somebody. Yeah, we just, we do so much and that support goes a long way. Even just if there's experts in your life, if you have a lawyer, if you know a social worker, if you know somebody specific to a city that does something, it's extremely important. And that's how you can uh, contact us. Um, and I, I always kind of wrap up our space with, I don't want to have to help you, but that's what we're here for. I, I pray that nobody needs our help to find your loved one or fight for justice for you because somebody was murdered or somebody was taken to you and somebody was trafficked and but we're always here to we're always here to help in any kind of way. Um, we've helped uh, offer assistance for non-native cases as well. Sometimes, you know, in communities where there's that big distrust, you know, we've been asked, you know, help me how to tell me how to make a, a safe flyer. You know, somebody in Dallas, you know, a, a young black lady was was missing, and I literally the first thing out, out the family's mouth is, I'm not calling the killer cops. That's how how deep that distrust goes, and it's really sad that we have to do so much work, to, and then hand basically hand over all of our work to two cops to get justice. You mentioned uh, two spirits, and I just wanted to know if you could define that for us. Two spirit is a way that we we include our LGBTQ plus uh, relatives. Our relatives in that community face higher rates of violence than even us as a min- minority and as women. They face the highest numbers of runaway and living on the streets and just are, are exposed to much more violence. But that includes our non-binary relatives. And it's not just a kind of catch-all term. Uh, it may seem like that uh, in our work. And we've talked about relatives, but a lot of, um, not all, a lot of uh, tribes 
um, have specific words for for that community and how they refer to and you know we we uplift them because they're sacred and a lot of tribes you know our two spirit relatives you know they're medicine keepers and holders and know how to heal people and have a lot of medicine in them and so we uplift them in those ways and we have kinship gatherings we have auntie time uncle time but we have a special uh two spirit relative time we're helping hopefully create family where our two spirit relatives don't feel alone um, don't feel neglected or you know excluded. We want to include them in everything and help them understand that they have a safe space and people to turn to. But yeah, it's two spirit encompasses that entire community, but it also refers to um, that lifestyle of if you are two spirit, it's a lot more than just just being you know your uh, non-binary self. It includes like your way of life and the 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 medicine ways that go along with that. So it's kind of, um, within our work, we kind of use it as a term of endearment and respect. Um, So I just wanted to honor, that's so loud, okay? Uh, Honor like the time and emotional impact of your work and just your presence today. Also want to honor the fact that um, there are impacted people on the stage instead of the three white men that were listed on the flyer of this. (laughs) No offense, white men, I'm sure you're fine, but I think it's really important that y'all are here and we're hearing your voices today. And then I also want to honor everyone that chose to come to this panel instead of karaoke. I know this is not like the fun part. Um, But I think this is, like, the noble aspect of, like, the true crime genre is, like, victims' voices, survivors' voices, and justice. Um, So I just want to thank all of y'all. And then I guess I wanted to ask if you could just talk a little bit about the rematriation piece and, like, beyond, you know, the violence against women. Like, can you just give us a little bit more of an explainer for everybody around, like, what all that entails and how, like, allies can support? Yeah. Um. So rematriate is a fairly newer term with just in, you know, with just in language in general. <laughs> One thing about, about with me personally, I, you know, different times in my life, you know, I've just been like, you know, down with the patriarchy, damn the man kind of thing and damn colonize this and Western this. And, um, and that's been English too, the language, you know, as well. Um, we've lost a lot of our languages and, or lost a lot of fluent speakers and how to communicate in our languages and you know we kind of joke around like if I can't type right if I can't spell right if I can't say things right it's because it's not my language you know it's like so um when I became familiar with this term uh it just made so much sense to me um if there was more normalized feminine versions of our language things could make a lot more sense in a lot of indigenous language we have that you know different terms uh you know I, I'm Lakota, and there's two different forms of hello for, for for men and women and everybody, you know. So there's so much that goes into language and culture and society in general. Uh, so rematriate kind of came to be that I felt like this work, I knew this work wasn't going to just be cases. Um, that it was going to grow into what it is today and really invite the work that helps heal our community on a cultural kind of aspect um, we wanted to uplift uh, the feminine. You know, um, people talk about rematriate the land because the land is so important. You know, what happens to the land happens to the women, and we face tons of violence. And so that helps people understand. That opens the door when we talk about rematriation to, to uplift uh, matriarchy in, in communities where it hasn't been there in a long time. 
um, you know, there are conversations around land back. And, you know, when we say land back, it's everything back. Not just give us this land so we can build something. No, it's like give us the space to be ourselves and gain our language back and our ceremonies back and our culture back so we can be strong enough that we don't have a crisis like this. Um, so, you know, rematriate is a very loaded word for us, but it helps us easily say all of the things that make our work what it is. Yeah, so I got invited by uh, Tim and Lance here um, to be a part of a podcast several years ago now. Yeah, it, w- it was a really, it was a really new platform for me. So I was a little reluctant, but it went very well. Um, I was really appreciative for, you know, it, you know, somebody mentioned, you know, like, oh, these white men should have been on thing, but we need that allyship. <laughs> we, we need those healthy relationships and that healthy allyship because that was, that was new for me, but it was a very welcoming, respectful space where I kind of was able to understand that, you know, I can say yes or no. I can dictate what I share. I can say how I need to refer to different things. Um, so yeah, that, that experience really helped me. I'm really thankful for that. Um, I know it's on YouTube and I know how, you know, if I need to find it, I can find it. Yeah. They, they referred to, um, another case, you know, LMA, she's been looked for for a long time, had her family on there. Um, yeah, I've been a little more open to that. This work, I know all of us get very protective of each other, um, of the families we're helping. Um, yeah, I can feel it happen when I see Christy or Phyllis overwhelmed or upset. I'm just like, okay, everybody needs to back off. <laughs> Stay away. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned anti-time and uncle time. And it sounded uplifting. And I was wondering what that is and what are just some of the things that you guys do when you're getting really loaded up. Um, yeah, so uh, we've created kinship gathering spaces. Um, kind of our way of checking in with people culturally. Um, we, I, I don't know other communities that have as many unhoused relatives as we do. We have a lot of unhoused by choice. Um, and we've had cases where, you know, people are just like, oh, they're, how is somebody missing if they're homeless? Uh, but they are. And that really just that really just kind of put a fire under me to help our community uplift your relationships and find a space where they can be with family. Maybe it's not their blood family. It's a chosen family space. But when you're in this space where you feel alone, sometimes you need, you need an auntie, you need an uncle, you know, to turn to, to share. Um, I had a lot of health issues and I was asking ladies older than me, about these, these, these women's issues. And I was thinking, how come I've never had these conversations with these people in my life? Um, and I was like, I just want to sit and talk to other, (laughs) to other people about these things. And that was kind of what kind of sparked us all. Like, let's offer these spaces where, um, you know, we're saying anti time, but everybody's an anti in some kind of way, you know, like you, you can help a person in that relative way. And our goal is to, even if we can offer that space once a month, every other month, you have somewhere to turn to. You're not always going to feel alone. Um, and that helps us too. We have, we have a blast at 
auntie time. We talk about everything. We have food. We, um, you know, one of our things was it's it's gonna feel like when you visit your auntie's house and you can sit and have coffee and and, and a donut and just talk. So we literally make sure that we have brunch time. You're coming. You're gonna have coffee. You're gonna sit here and feel 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 nice. You know, feel safe. We've had coloring sheets. We've had speakers. We've had uh, we do door prizes. We in and open. We open and close with prayer. We've had times where um, we've had other members uh, offer offer our medicines like um, sage and sweet grass and cedar and things like that. Um, this is our way of combating issues that push people away and onto the streets and in unsafe spaces. Not only that, within our urban Indian community here, we do have other events such as our, our, our powwows and our gatherings at the church and arts and crafts and everything. Um, just, to, just to stay, I mean, this is our family, you know, and we do have a lot of uh, organize, other organizations within the Indian community here in the DFW area as well. But um, they, have the, they have the tribal center where they teach the children for fancy dancing, drumming, um, art. Um, but a lot of us, I mean, we are a very tight-knit community. Um, so I know for myself, it's kind of a peaceful time and a chance where you're out, where we're out of the world, where we feel like we have a place and we feel like we belong. Um, which points to the reason that the decal I like to draw, I do paint, and the reason for our logo was my painting, um, which reflects myself and my granddaughter praying and healing together. It also has the seven sacred uh, teachings of our society for uh, the women at the bottom. As far as the reflection of the water for, uh, you know, women are the water keepers of life, and that's where life begins in the embryo and water, um, as well as the, the, the uh, medicine wheel. So uh, that was a logo that I've drawn, and that's a lot of what I do to bring myself peace and just to regroup and bring myself back to who I really am. Yeah, um, like I said, we, we try to open and close with prayer, so Phyllis is going to close our space out. We just thank you. We offer many thanks for the space and this atmosphere that you have brought us into today. And we just ask that we just ask for for continued strength and courage to do what we do. And may we always can always Uplift the families of these victims who were voiceless. May we may we continue to offer our love and our compassion, our respect and remembrance to every name that was spoken here today in this space. We ask for guidance. As we leave these, as we leave this place, may we continue to seek you. And I just ask these things, and I uplift your name.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.